Pete has run over to, uh, to get some scripture verses, so we don't have any slides tonight. Um, and so if you have your cell phones with you, uh, I would invite you to uh, turn to one of my favorite scripture passages. There are actually going to be papers coming here. Each table is going to have one because I'd like you to talk a little amongst yourselves about some of this. But um, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. So if you wanted to go there while we're waiting. Oh, Pete's here, so don't go to your cell phones because, you know, you don't want to be addicted to those. Yeah, that, that would be bad. Here, let me get my thing on here good because I'm freaking out here. Um, so being passed out, if somebody wants to help pass some of these out, are uh, slides of scripture verses. And um, here's the reality. A lot of what I've been talking with you this weekend about are questions and issues I'm facing with college students who come into my office or classes I teach and the questions that they're, they're dealing with. And so um, I, uh, in light of the reality that tomorrow is the celebration, the remembrance of Martin Luther King, and the reality of what he tried and did to help bring the attention of what we as Americans held as a a racist, slave-holding culture. He opened the door to conversations that a lot of us didn't want to have. And this is that weekend. So I thought it appropriate to talk about, uh, the title of my talk is Canaanite Lives Matter. And I'd like, uh, I, I opened this up in 1994. My family moved to Africa. And we started Young Life in Africa. We were some of the uh, first Young Life folks to go to the continent. And I was in a church service. <laughs> Just wondering. Um, it was January. It was... Uh, New Year's Eve service at this church called Nairobi Chapel in Kenya. It was a blown-out little building with no roof. It, I was freaked out. I'd been in the country with my family with three little blonde-haired girls. We were the whitest people on earth. And I went down, didn't know Swahili, but they were speaking in some English because it was, uh, there was Americans in this New Year's Eve service. Pastor Asku Mareru opened up the service by asking people to be ready to share what they're thankful for. And um, it was in 94 that the Rwandan genocide had happened, where Hutus were killing Tutsis. It was unbelievable. It was an ethnic cleansing, almost to the millions. And um, I was in that service coming from Lake Oswego, Oregon, this rich, rich area that I had been a youth pastor and was sitting in the service, and in the midst of the sharing of praise, these three Tutsi women from Rwanda, the border of Rwanda comes right up to Kenya, had fled for the border and made it across into Kenya. And they got up and praised God that when they lined them all up around the pit and began to shoot, 
and everybody fell in, they weren't shot. And they laid there under bodies and then crawled out and ran for the border and survived. And I'm trying to put this into my white boy privileged world and I was realizing that something was going to change in my life because I decided to take my family and move to the Africa. And the issue, I mean, this is the reality. Rwanda was considered the most Christian country in the world. 96% Christian. And how could that happen in that country? Christians supposedly ethnically cleansing a whole other tribe. And this is the challenge of, of all of humanity. I mean, anthropologists would tell us that um, there is not a people group that they've studied that in their evolutionary journey at some point haven't, have, have, have said this, have tried ethnic cleansing. In fact, there's not a tribe or a culture or a people group that we've studied that haven't at some point in their evolution decided that you shouldn't intermarry. In fact, I have some uncles who still don't think that. And I'm saying that in the light that we have intermarriage right here. And we, we're not struggling with this, but I know some people who would. I mean, this is the story of, a, of humanity, right? Tribal hatred, to dominate, to separate, the survival of the fittest, the struggle for food and shelter. You take the other tribe out so you can live a little stronger and last a little longer and be a little better. And this is the story of Israel. There were certain tribes that wanted to take Israel out, if you look at the Old Testament. And there were certain tribes that Israel wanted to take out that even maybe God told them to take out, which begins some struggles about who God is. Uh, God told Moses as they fled from Egypt that they were going to the land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, the land of Canaan. The problem was um, there were Canaanites there. So here's one of my favorite scripture verses, and it's on your little sheet. You can look uh, with each other. It's that... Second verse down from the top, Deuteronomy 7. Let me just read it. You can follow along with your little small group around the table. Here's what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Jezerites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzerites, the Hivites, the Jezerites, the Termites, or, oh, no, sorry, um, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must totally destroy them. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and, all will, and, and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred plate, stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. I've never used that section of scripture for like a club talk at Young Life. 
It's not really popular. In fact, it's not the most popular one in the Jesus Calling book either. Uh, This is bothersome. And the reason I bring this up, because a student came into my office last year, opened this section up, and said, hey, would you read this? And I read it in my office, and he said, is this the God you want me to believe in? I mean, what would you say? So it's in light of this that we come to the passage that I want to talk about today, Canaan Lives Matter, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And I'd like to just have you, maybe around your table, just read. It's the very first uh, verse there. This is a story that isn't talked about much, but it's a story of Jesus. And I'd just like you to read it, and then I'll... We'll talk a little bit. Maybe just around your table. What's bothersome to you in this story of Jesus? What's bothersome? Go ahead and talk with with each other. If somebody's sharing right now, just kind of wrap up your little statement, because I know we're on a little bit of a time frame here, but um, I wish we could go a little longer, but... Your, your father 
So I don't know what you're talking about in your small groups other than this. Um, my question is this. Is Jesus a racist? Megan's Megan's talking. Megan's Megan's breaking out. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. Uh, we're we're gonna get around it, but I mean, I, I should have said to you, I, I would like you to have to have read this in a way that if you just had, if if nobody had ever told you anything and you just read this, you know, what would you think? Yeah. Yeah, which is interesting. She almost seems to be schooling Jesus. Now, I'm going to be careful here. Who can school Jesus, right? A woman can. (laughs) Come on. But I mean, well, let me say this much. We understand this much about the story, right? We understand why the disciples said, send her away. I mean, they were hanging out of the Deuteronomy 7 story. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The Jews hated Canaanites. No doubt about it. And let's be honest here. This story is troubling. Jesus calls her a dog. I mean, the Jews only called two people groups dogs, Samaritans and Canaanites. I mean, everybody, Gentiles were the others. But the ones they really hated were Samaritans and Canaanites. So what's going on here? This, this is troubling. Some would say, well, the Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Deuteronomy 7, that's just the way God rolls sometimes. Well, this section of Scripture has been used in history to give supposed Christians license to violently kill during the Crusades of the 11th century. Deuteronomy 7, look what God's doing. Spanish Inquisition. We can go do this. The British and the Dutch and the Americans, it led them to a theology of what we call manifest destiny. This ideal that the West is sort of uniquely uh, determined by God to spread the good news by however we want to, to subdue the world however we can, you know, to bring Christianity and democracy and capitalism or whatever to rule and subdue the entire planet. So in the name of Jesus, the Dutch went to South Africa and started apartheid. Christians. We, the British, who came to America, took over Kenya and India and violently colonized their countries in the name of Jesus. It's what Americans did to our first nation people group here when we came in the name of God to America. It's what we did to Africa in the slave trade here in the name of God here in America. 
In, in May, 26th of May, 1637, an army of English settlers under the leadership of, of Captain John Morgan set fire, this is really kind of loaded here, so, set fire to a Pequot Indian village along the Mystic River in New York. They burned hundreds of women and children, and anybody that ran out from the fire, they cut down with a sword. Puritan John Underhill wrote this, and you have it on your notes there. This is the quote from the journal of that whole story. Here's Puritan Christian John Underhill. Down fell men, women, and children. Should not Christians have had more mercy and compassion? Sometimes the scripture declareth, women and children must perish with their parents. We had sufficient light from the word of God for our proceedings. Uh, local theologian, ch church person, lecturer, I think at Bethel, I like some of his stuff. Uh, John Piper declares this around this scripture, and he declares this without hesitation. Maybe some of you know John Piper, I don't know. It's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. God gives life and God takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. Well, I mean, <clears throat> my dad kind of would go, yeah, John Piper, I like that guy. You know, that's my dad. I struggle with that a little more because I, th I think that if the slaughter of Canaanite children elicits only a shrug, well, that's the way God is. If God can tell Israel to take out all the heathen Canaanites, then who's to say that we can't continue that same, which we have, and we can take out the heathen fill-in-the-blank with the country, the tribe, the religion, the group you want, and say, in the name of God, we do this. This is the challenge. Now, my college students don't just leave me there with this. Uh, they force me to deal with some biblical tension. And so here's the biblical tension. This is not Deuteronomy 7 is not the only statement God made about what's going to happen in the land of Canaan. In fact, the earliest and first statement God made about the promised land is in Exodus chapter 21. So if you, you have that listed there. And here is another section of scripture that speaks about the land of Canaan. Now listen to this story. And theologians struggle with this. They don't know what to do with certain things. I will send my terror. Nobody quite knows what that is. They don't quite know what that Hebrew word is, but we translate it terror. We don't quite know what that is. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. So, so far, this is becoming a little bit different than totally destroy them. But anyway, turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land will become too desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to possess the land. I don't know about you, I like that one better. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, first, it totally destroy them. If you read Joshua, that's a story where, like, in one month, they went and killed them all with Joshua. You know, they're giants. We can kill them. But here, the first one is almost like, hey, uh, we're going to send some bees. 
you know, I don't know, we were at a campsite when I was a kid, there was a forest fire, and hornets came down along the lake, and there were so many hornets, we just packed up in the middle of the night and left. It's almost like God saying, I'm going to send some bees, and you're going to come into the land little by little, so not to devastate it all. And you're going to come in and go, hey, do you mind if we come in here? And they're going, yeah, welcome to Bee Fest, you know. And, and then we're just going to take possession of the land. It seems a little more peaceful than utterly destroy them, totally destroy them. Now, I don't have time to wrestle with this biblical tension. But let me just suffice it to say that the Bible is not simply a theology book on how God rolls. It's also a book on how people roll and how people maybe misunderstood him and tried to figure out who this God Yahweh was in light of all the gods they knew before Abraham even heard about this God Yahweh who told them that he was going to be the father of a great nation. They knew about the violence of Marduk and Dagon and Molech and the Baals and Asherah who demanded death and killing and violence. That's what they knew. So I don't know how you deal with this biblical tension about how God rolls, but we, do, we know this much, that the people of the Old Testament God got God wrong enough that God sent Jesus to set it straight. We know that much who came down and said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21, Moses heard that from God, and Jesus said, oh, I don't know what you're thinking because I'm telling you I am God, and I'm saying pray for enemies, love those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek if they strike you. We know that he was with the disciples, and they went to a town, and he spoke, and the people rejected him. On the way out, the disciples, still hanging on to Deuteronomy 7, and the, we hate Canaanites, and we can be violent, said to Jesus, hey, I heard that Elijah or something one time sent like fire and brimstone to destroy a bunch of people. Could we, we call it down on this village who didn't like your message or sermon? And Jesus goes, no. So whatever we do with this section of Scripture, we have to wrestle with some tough issues. I will say this, whatever theology you hold, let's be honest, all of our theologies hold some gray areas. And the question I would ask before, to you is, which gray areas are you most comfortable with? Because we all have them as we think about these stories. And I think this is why later the people demanded a king said, God, give us a king like all the other nations. And I think this is why God said, I don't want to give you a king. And they kept relenting. They kept, they kept saying, give us a king. We want a king. Finally, they did. Saul, they gave him a king. But God said, no, 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 no. And finally, he relented. Because I think God knew that if I give you a king, you're going to get his stuff, your tribal stuff, your empire stuff, your political stuff, all mixed up with my stuff. And then you're going to call it me. And that's what we do. We often do that. We call it God. Now, let's stop for a minute here and talk about the context of Matthew chapter 15, the story of this Canaanite woman. And obviously, we have to deal with the reality that Joshua didn't kill them all and totally destroy them. There must have been a few babies that survived because we got a Canaanite woman talking to Jesus. <laughs> and the Canaanite people now are the people of Lebanon who are still alive. So we uh, still have Canaanites. Uh, what's the context? Well, if you go back up from chapter 15, where we read, starting with verse 16, and look at chapter uh, verse 1 through uh, 20, 
Jesus is having this huge argument with the Pharisees who are all pissed at him. Oh, you just were pissed. I thought it was talking. Anyway, anyway, pissed at him uh, because he and his disciples are eating food with unclean hands. They didn't do the proper ceremonial washing. And they're getting in this big fight with Jesus. And Jesus is blasting them for being all concerned about the outward show. You know, washing their hands and looking so pure, you know. And so in verse uh, 16 to 20, here's what he says. And I think I've written this on here. Here's, here's the context of this story of the Canaanite woman. Jesus says this. Are you so dull, he asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Not eating with unwashed hands. That does not defile them. And you can see the disciples going, yeah, you Pharisees, your big outside show. We're with this guy. <laughs> they probably just rubbed their hands in the dirt and ate some more bread, you know. <laughs> you know, they're all like, oh. And then Jesus moves into the story, here it is, the Canaanite woman. And in this story, Jesus reveals what's in the true hearts of his little posse, of his followers, of the boys that were just with him a few minutes earlier going, yeah, outward show, it's from, out, it's from the inside that we have the truth that really hurt people, it's the inside. Hmm. And here comes this Canaanite woman bugging the 12. We know that they've been bugging him because she said she keeps coming after us. You know, let's play this out. Sometimes you read a story like this, like Megan, you said, I'd never read this before. I'd never seen this story before. And we read it in 30 seconds and go, whew. But really, what went on here? I mean, let's play this out. This woman comes up with a daughter who's demon-possessed. She's desperate. She's a Canaanite. She's one of them. And she says, please, and begs Jesus, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Now, let's just stop here. You cannot say a word. You cannot say a word. Like, who, where was she standing? Where were the disciples? I think she came and said, please, heal my daughter. I think a tear came out of Jesus' eye. And I think he looked at his disciples and he said, Nothing. And his disciples did this. You know, Jesus didn't say anything. Send her away. What? She, she's a freaking Canaanite. Send, she's been bugging. You see the picture here. We can read this story or we can read this story. And then, as he's looking at his disciples, this woman standing here, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. <laughs> at least Jesus calls them lost. You know, he didn't say, I was sent to the holy great people of Israel. But he's looking at his boys and I'm saying to the lost sheep of Israel. And you can see the disciples going, that's us. You Canaanite woman. We should have run you down. Joshua should have found you and the other babies. We were called to totally destroy you. Obviously, a couple of you got away. You should have been killed way back then. Yeah, he's come for us. And Jesus is between the woman and these racist little posse boys that are hanging out with him. And the woman responds again. In the midst of all this racism, she persists. 
And she kneels this time. I mean, she falls to Jesus' feet and says, Lord, help me. This woman is at the ground at Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at the disciples and looks at this woman and says, we can't take the children's bread and, and feed it to the dogs. And his disciples go, I like that one, Jesus. And then she utters, yeah, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs from the master's table. And the disciples are like, what? You can see there's a what? And I think at that point, Jesus stepped in front of the disciples and he knelt down to this woman. And he said, as he held her face, and he looked at his disciples, he said, greater faith have I never found than in you. In the midst of my racist friends, you risked it all. Of course, your daughter is healed. And then I think he stood up and he looked at his disciples and he said, Now, there's a story. Canaanite lives matter. How beautiful. Jesus broke the racial tradition of the Old Testament. And look at the literary imagery of all of this. Just the literary imagery. We have people, that's why they study the Bible as literature at the University of Washington. I mean, the professor doesn't even think it's inspired. Hmm. But they have to admit, whoa, the literary imagery of all of this story, right? I mean, Deuteronomy 7. I mean, totally destroy them. Why? Canaanite daughters are dangerous. They lead Israelite boys astray. But in this story, Jesus lets a Canaanite woman lead the Israelite boys in the way. The way of Jesus. The way of total acceptance, a God that is for all people. Jesus doesn't follow the no mercy rule for the Canaanites. And at this point, this is what is unbelievable. Jesus' ministry goes multicultural. The very next section of scripture, you'll see it here, Matthew 15, 29 through 34, and I'll end with this. Here's what it says. This is just coming right up next. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee, And there he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and a great crowd came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. And the people were amazed when they saw the the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, well, how do we get food for this, this many people? It's a remote place. Well, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowds to sit down on the ground, and then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, and they in turn to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 men and women, besides children. And that Jesus had sent, them, sent the crowd away. He got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Now, we are most familiar with chapter 14 of Matthew. 
the story of the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000. But there's a big difference. In the feeding of the 5,000, which we're most familiar with, this was in Jewish territory. And if you read that story, you'll discover that at the end of that same breaking the fish with all these 5,000 people, the disciples picked up, do you, anybody remember how many basketfuls they picked up just a chapter earlier in Jewish territory? 12 baskets. This is why the Bible is so cool. Like, the least you can say about the Bible is like, whoa, this crazy group of aliens with the Illuminati or whoever put this thing together. And wow, the imagery is unbelievable. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many tribes of Israel? Twelve. Where are they? In the land of Israel with the twelve tribes of Jews. They picked up twelve baskets. And the feeding of the 4,000 after the Canaanite woman and after all the other stuff, the inside and the Pharisees and them, the racist disciples, they're in Sidon. This is Canaanite territory. And look at the beautiful imagery. How many baskets did they pick up? Seven. How many tribes that everybody hated that were Jews? Seven. Jesus' ministry goes multicultural. Wow. I mean, this, the least you can say is, that's interesting. I mean, here with the Canaanite woman, Jesus began the ultimate goal of the mission of God, which started thousands of years earlier with a guy named Abraham who God called and said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and from you, all the people groups will be blessed. And here Jesus proved it. He started the movement of God. I close with this. And I'm sorry this is so heavy, but I have to say it. I close with this. Am I a racist? Are there certain people that I don't want to love? Do I hold on to a sort of American elitism that subtly sees other cultures as maybe substandard or less able, or maybe even unintelligent? Do I classify certain people of a certain color with a certain accent in certain parts of town or particular countries with particular religious beliefs and sort of keep away from them? Have I ever talked to somebody who's gay about how they feel or what they think about God? Am I a womanizer? Do I subtly treat women as slightly inferior? Do I shame other men for being a little feminine, thus perpetuating this cultural standard that being a woman is weak or undesirable? I mean, why is it that I always say, hey, man up, and I never say woman up? Or do certain types of people even set me off, make me feel uncomfortable, or do I just plain despise them? I mean, do you act like Jesus or do you act like the disciples you know, send her away for she's just bugging us you know tomorrow we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King and in the light of this my friends at Family Fest I always want to give a little benediction let's pray may we look seriously at our own lives and bring before the Lord the many insidious and subtle ways that we discriminate 
judge, point the finger, cross to the other side of the street from, not look in the eye. The ways that we have distanced ourselves from those around us who aren't like us, who have a different religion, who aren't from here. The ways we've considered our interests, our interests, instead of the interests of the oppressed or the less fortunate. And may we stand for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who spoke against the racism of his friends, loved the most hated, and took the good news to those that previously were considered dogs, cursed, not one of us. And may we radically welcome them in. Amen. Thank you once again, Kent. That was a great word, great, especially on this weekend as we think about Martin Luther King weekend. Um, so thank you very much. And as we get ready to close and uh, send you out to pick up your kids, I just want to take a minute to thank you for being here. There's a lot of places you could have chosen to be. Get a little feedback there, Tony. Um, a lot of places you could have chosen to be, things you could have done with your, your weekend, with your finances. But you chose to be here, and I just want to thank you for doing that because I, I think the impact that you can make when you go home is so huge. Um, you become a light in a dark world, and it, it just amazes me to watch how that can ripple out to communities and, and how it can change friendships and, and what you do. And, and really the most important thing is what we're doing for our kids. As Kent mentioned, you know, the, the idea that kids are worshiping with multi-generations is huge. And it, we've seen it over the last 22 years, the power of that. So thank you for choosing to be here. Thank you for inviting others to be here. Uh, those of you who came for the first time were invited by somebody. And so we encourage you now to be thinking about who can I invite next time? Who would this benefit? Now, I say some of this stuff and also want to let you know it's not done. We are far from over. And so don't go back to your room and start thinking, you know, we should just pack up a few things. Uh, and then maybe we should just put them in the car because that'll help the tomorrow morning. You got plenty of time. You didn't bring all that much stuff. It's not going to take long to throw it in your car. In fact, you don't even need to put it in your suitcase. Just grab a bag and throw it in the car, you, you know. Um, because I think God often speaks to us the most after we've become disposed to his word. And now here we are after this great dinner. We are disposed to listen to God's true words. So uh, hang in there. Your kids tomorrow have a wonderful program of all the things that they've done uh, this weekend, and they can't wait to show you. Uh, so uh, go in, into the rest of the, the time that we have together uh, expectant for what God is going to do. All right. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nikki.